So, welcome to Idea Market Podcast. I am joined once again by Mike Elias, CEO of Idea Market, and we are joined by Michael Garfield, who is the host of Future Fossils and the Complexity Podcast, or hashtag Complexity Podcast, if you can find that, and hashtag Future Fossils to find that. Uh, also, a context provider, a rift navigator, and uh, a novelty engine was this. This is what I've taken from your biography from Twitter, which is three sort of fairly very open things going on there. But um, instead of sort of asking the general introduce yourself question, we have a little bit of a different question here on Idea Market Podcast. If, Michael, you were to develop a course. And the purpose of this course is to teach everyone, educate everyone who takes it to become uh, as close to your way of thinking as possible. What would this course look like? It would be, I, well, I was nailed a few years ago by art professor Michael Schwartz, who said that what I do is is creative deconstruction. So I feel like what I'm what I'm especially good at is in a in a boring way described as lateral thinking but i i regard it as more a way of kind of jimmying people out of their cognitive ruts um you know like i i used to be obsessed with these uh, pbs nova dinosaur documentaries and there was always this scene in the documentary where someone would get their field vehicle stuck out in the badlands of mongolia or whatever and they would have to get under it with planks and like you know kind of like crank the, the car out of this this puddle and you know i think that i i just have such uh delightful irreverence i, I was about to say disrespect for the these conceptual categories as sort of like fixed ontological things you know like art science and religion like th that that sort of trinity people defend and like people aggressively police the boundaries of these three ideas and i what i like to do is is show people how to kind of turn this hyperdimensional object so that you're looking through the prism so that what people are calling science is an art uh, or what people are calling religion is a science, et cetera. And you can, obviously those are just three things. Like there's a, there, you know, take anything. The, you know, for me, it's about teaching people how to hotwire their own mind so that you can, you, you basically like it's a, it's a meta-programming thing. Like, uh, Lake often Johnson's metaphors we live by, which was like one of my most important formative books, you know, makes the case that is, you know, the, the metaphor is, is this sort of ultimate super tool. And we just take for granted when someone says, Oh, it is this, it's like, Oh, well, it is, or is not. And it's like, well, actually, you know, is, is a really powerful tool in reconstructing our relationships to the you know the undivided whole cloth of our experience and so you know most of my writing and the book that i'm i'm currently um in the process of revising for metanoia press richard doyle's uh imprint is you know is is all about this where it's like the future is this and every section is <laughs> there i go doing it again and just assuming 
that's but yeah that that kind of thing that you know using using uh metaphorical associations and entailments as as flexible operators so that we can see things in in fresh ways that's what i would teach people that's awesome and it makes perfect sense the uh I, and I, I enjoy this theme in general, just the amount of value that can be unlocked just by applying a different metaphor to the same set of concepts. Um, we really do get entrenched in metaphors like their infrastructure. Like if the highway doesn't go there, you just can't go there. But uh, you know, we have way more <laughs> control over that than uh, convention would suggest. Uh, so I think that's really cool. And, and Pretty, pretty exciting answer. I'm interested in, do you have any favorite, favorite metaphors or favorite like reframes of things that are commonly mismetaphored? You know, being someone who relishes my time space synesthesia, I think most people take for granted that time is spatial. And I love thinking about time in spatial metaphor, but from a remove, from the, the kind of remove that we're talking about here, where we realize that it's just a, a conceptual tool. Um, so, I mean, that's, it, it turns out actually like, that's not as common as I thought it was. You know, for instance, like Which I, part, I the the, re, the reframing in general is well, not like as common. Seeing, or? Like thinking of time in a spatial sense, like people we use calendars. You know, like we we tend to lay things out in that way, but it turns out that, or last I read, something like only one in fifty people actually have a persistent geometry in their in their imagination when they think about time. Like for me, it's sort of you know this annual wheel has a a very sort of specific orientation, you know, like I'm standing here in September and then I'm like looking across this atrium to, uh, February, you know, diametrically. And, you know, as, as it's like a rotating restaurant on top of a building or something. Um, so, you know, that's, that's kind of the, you know, what I inhabit. I, I saw recently this company in Boulder tried to patent, using the like a fractal helix to represent time and i lost my mind on them i was like you can't like i am i am i am seriously opposed to the the in, enclosure of these kinds of conceptual uh terrains through you know like with with uh, commerce and I, I went and i found all of these uh, all the prior art to bust their patent case because i was like you can't you know you can't do that that's not fair this is like this is this is not the king's forest okay like we all we all get to to forage here um but yeah i think i mean that's that's not like especially uh you know amazing but i'm i i do think that there's once you once you get into playing with the idea that that the this is really just a metaphor and that we don't really know what time is in that sense, you know, because people confuse mathematical dimensions, which are conceptual with like physical dimensions. And I think even physicists probably do this. Like I'm actually not convinced 
that space is extension in the way that we think of it, you know? Uh, and I, I think it's, it's much more about like the organization of, of, you know, our sensorium into something, you know, that, that we can, you know, it's, it's, it's more like data compression or something. And it's not necessarily like we move through space, you know, because if, you know, for the same reason that people critique the idea that we move through time. Um, But at any rate, that's, you know, I don't know if we wanted to go there right away. We've gone deep. We're in deep already. Yes, we have about two hours left to record. And by that, I mean about 11 meters. And uh, we can... <laughs> one, thing that, one thing that's interesting there, you talk about this um, patenting of this company. So you said they wanted to like a helix in relation to time? They yeah, they to wanted patent... to patent the visualization of time as a helix. Okay. Well, it, made, it just made me think of um, Infinite Jest, where the time frame and all the years are sponsored, right? And it's like... 1991 whatever year of the adult i think is the first year is like the year of the adult undergarment like the incontinent adult <laughs> undergarment and all years are sponsored so like it, you know if we, if we said the date now we'd have to be like yeah it's a letter what is it today 13th of september 2021 the year of the like the miniature mars bar or something <laughs> i was i always loved that because i thought to be fair i don't think we're that far away from that someone like a company is powerful enough to go yeah we sponsored the date like, and all the kids in school have to write that as a date. But I, I don't know. I mean, maybe that's, that's a strange tangent to go on. But why did that? Why did that frustrate you so much that they wanted to patent the visualization of time? Well, I mean, I think to the extent that people listening to this show are self-selected, more likely to be people who believe in open source. Mm. Then you know, for me, it's it, it comes down to this this. Fantastic! Yes, they're all you're all geniuses, uh, <laughs> but no, I mean, in, in in all likelihood, you're you're listening to this, and so you are fed up with the corporate enclosure of you know the, the successive enclosure of more and more sort of abstract terrains of experience. And you know, I read, I think a lot of this came out of my reading Lewis Hyde's book Common as Air, which is an, a a history of intellectual property, and you know, he, he talks about the first enclosure being the enclosure of geography, of physical land. The second enclosure being the enclosure of ideas. And then the third enclosure, which is something that's happened basically over the course of our lives, is being able to patent something for which there is no known utility, which is basically speculative patenting. You know, and that's that's the majority of, you know, like, Monsanto patenting a significant fraction of the human genome, for instance, just because they have the legal authority, like the legal power to do this. And so, you know, this is, this is um, the enclosure of the future. It's the enclosure of things that we don't yet understand. And that really just gets under my skin because I mean, for, you know, this is, this is sort of like related to this other issue, which is that, you know, profit is something that I I hold. You know, because I work in science communication for the Santa Fe Institute, and uh, I spend a lot of time hanging out with these uh, and and listening to these economists who are trying to 
make f- formal mathematical models that are that he, that hew closer to the actual dynamics of of systems so like you know sfi was largely responsible for moving economics out of this the sort of equilibrium idea you know that that there were that everything is seeking a balance it's like well not really it's an open system sunlight comes in you know things things build order out of available free energy and export disorder and then in that system uh all of these different players have strategies that they're constantly adapting to the the ever shifting strategies of everyone else so it's never actually going to find that balance um and you know so like this kind of thinking uh also you know a critique of the idea of the sort of self-serving rational agent because there's a fundamental uncertainty you know none of us actually have perfect information about the world that we're inhabiting and so none of us are capable of making the kind of decisions that most economics models are still talking about people making today and so you know in in this you know stewing in this community of of minds as i have one of the things that's become really obvious to me is that all economic models are themselves evolutionary products that uh, they're a hypothesis in the same way that your body can kind of be seen as a hypothesis. You know, it's an encoding of stable environmental features as a way of like, you know, reducing uncertainty, uh, not just for you, but like for the the ecosystem in which you in that you inhabit. And and so an economic model is by necessity leaving something out in the same way that a machine learning algorithm is is always going to overfit its training data and so that means that like basically e- economic models that are um lean that are as you know are sort of like parsimonious as possible are and and this has been the you know the case for you know basically the all of the modern world that that we're optimizing for profit and therefore also optimizing for externalities and and so like to the extent that we uh you know to the extent that we we try to like cut something over here we're creating all of these unintended consequences and of course like it you know trying to like contain and understand everything doesn't make that any better you actually generate more externalities you know going on the you know taking things to the 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 opposite pole as well but the point is that like it's really hard for me now to like i can't think any other way uh, except that basically any attempt that we make to to model value in an economy by which i include like the ecosystem that underlies that economy, right? Like the the whole conversation around ecosystem services is fraught for this reason, because we don't actually know everything that an acre of rainforest is doing. And so if we, if we try to like financialize that acre as a way of, of like respecting its contributions to the human economy, then we are we're, we're, we continue to undermine ourselves uh, by by 
you know, intentionally and in, on some level ignoring uh, everything else that it's doing that we don't yet realize. And so like th this, you know, when it comes to like, <laughs> sorry for this like huge thing, but like the, you know, the, the point is that like we enclose uh, the future by doing this, you know, and, 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 you know, this, you know, I'm, I'm really kind of agnostic as far as value creation is concerned for these reasons. You know, I think that the, the like Cory Doctorow has written really excellently about his critiques of terra nullius with, you know, th this notion that, that, um, somebody is creating value whole cloth out of raw materials, you know, which is, is very much a colonialist way of thinking, you know, oh, this continent is uninhabited except by everybody that already lives here. And, and, you know, I feel that way about the future and, and future fossils is largely about trying to sort of restore a, a dialogue with and an awareness of, uh, you know, everything that we don't already recognize that we're in conversation with, you know? And so, so yeah, it just really, really pisses me off when I, when people are just like, you know, profit maximizers that are like, oh, here's something that no one has planted a flag in yet. So we're going to pretend that we came up with it. And it's like, bullshit, you did, you know, actually, ironically, Kevin Kelly, uh, it wrote a really, I think, another really solid critique of this in his book, What Technology Wants, which for, you know, for all the things I, I might object to about that book, like he's got a great chapter in Simultaneous Co-Discovery, talking about how like the inventor is actually part of this ecosystem and everyone's kind of standing at the edge of the same adjacencies, you know? And so it's it's just, you know, really the people that we regard and reward as as innovative heroes of history are, are just the people that were like standing on the backs of enough other people that they could reach this thing that, that many, many other people could see at the same time. And so we need to come up with, I think that this is kind of where, where it lines up with the, the work that y'all are doing because, you know, we, we need to find a better way to understand and reward individual contributions in terms of, you know, the production of, or, or the, the extraction of knowledge. Was there's that? A, <laughs> there's, I mean, there's a, there's a really interesting point from that, right? That something that, something it made me think about, and I'm, I'm not sure if this is entirely true. I remember there was a big hoo-ha about it a few years ago when it first uh, was in the news that certain companies, uh, the two most notable ones were Facebook and Cadbury's, you know, who do the chocolate. They have apparently copyrighted their so there's a Facebook blue and Cadbury's purple, right? That's like their color, right? Like they, you, no one can use it. Like they, ha they own a color. And I remember thinking back then, I was like, you've just cracked open like a thousand different philosophical problems. Like so somehow, you know, Mer Morris uh, Merlo Ponty <laughs> writes a twelve hundred page, you know, eight hundred page philosophical tomb. On whether or not there can even be like the phenomenology of color, and Cadbury's is like, yeah, there can, and we <laughs> and we own it. So I feel like immediately as they, you know, like as immediately as you do that, not only are you like claiming this ownership, but you're also like immediately 
destroying a ton of questioning and horizons, right? You're like, we don't care about the horizon. Like, no, we own it. No, none of the, you don't get to do anything anymore. And there's, there's no more questioning. It's like, oh, well, I guess, I guess we just, I guess we just got to deal with that now. Right. And it's such a weird predicament to be in because it seems so simple to say, well, hang on. Like what, what, what is a color? Like what have you, I don't really understand what you've done. You know what I mean? And then this whole horizon, as I said, is just sort of cut off. I don't really know where I was going from that, but it did just make me think of that because I, th- I think Coca-Cola as well might have done it, that these colors are so famous that there was actually a, it's a really, it's quite depressing, but there is somewhere a chart of, can you name these brands? And it's blocks of color. And it makes you realize like what the advertising world has done to your brain, right? You see the purple, you're like, man, that's Cadbury's. And you think, oh God. Like my brain's been absolutely fried <laughs> by by marketers, and 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 you know by the same extent. Like I remember reading this this thing about how people who are really really good at recognizing makes and models of cars, it's the same part of your brain that's responsible for facial recognition, and so those people have sort of like filled that part of their brain. They've trained that network on cars, and they have a harder time recognizing individual faces. Because it, you know, they've tuned it in that direction, and so you know, yeah. I and mean, we live in this next nature to, you know, to uh, to point to that that Dutch organization, nextnature.net, which is you know exploring this really dicey, bizarre terrain. Um, they the the next nature, like their whole thing is their their like uh, wallpaper are all of the brand logos that are animals, and so you know you realize that that we rec- to your point like we realize we recognize all of these things we are still using the same part of our brain that was responsible for navigating a biodiverse landscape and it's now a and and a, it's it that diversity has been sort of like uploaded into corporate ip space and you know now when i walk around my neighborhood i'm really trying to sort of restore the topsoil in, of my own mind and like back backfill this by going around with Google lens because there's no, there's no abuela here to teach me about all the local herbs, you know? So I'm using plant ID software to say, okay, like what are, what are the medicinal plants growing in my yard? And like, that's basic, like that's the most that I can do. But like, I mean, it, you know, it's so funny to say, well, of course we recognize all these different colors because, you know, like if you go, to talk to somebody who grew up in the rainforest and like an uncontacted tribe, you know, that's our brains are doing the same thing their brains are doing. We're just, you know, adapting to the, you know, the stable features of a built environment, except now humans are the ones building it. And, and maybe not even humans. Like I, I'm kind of into this eldritch thing about how, you know, the, the, the social, and the institutional has actually been in charge, has been like the dominant causal f- force of humankind since we started, you know, since what we would recognize as human beings uh, first appears in the fossil record that like we're human because we're like living in these super organisms. But, you know, but it's getting it's getting out of hand. Damn. <laughs> the Facebook blue thing makes me want to see if there's anyone listening to this who has the ability to make Facebook blue colored glasses that we can just buy and turn everything Facebook blue and just see if they 
do anything about it. I think that would be a hilarious lawsuit to be on the receiving end of. Do you think that the legal team ever like looks up on a sunny day and is like checking the sky? And if it gets a certain shade of blue, they're like, right, that's it, man. <laughs> yeah, send up send up more pollutants. Right, yeah. Or the sea. <laughs> well, you know, in, in 2013, Disney tried to trademark Dia de los Muertos because they were they were uh the film that eventually became Coco was uh going to be called Dia de los Muertos. And so they were getting they were trying to get ahead and like, you know set up all the ip for all the merchandise and the the hispanic community completely jumped on their asses about it and actually it's a beautiful thing um you know i this is a weird sort of twisted thing to have hope in but i do i do see that like we do have to strike a balance with these these super predators that we've created and now live underfoot with you know and and you know disney to realizing that they were undermining their own profit-seeking motive by enclosing this particular piece of a fiercely defended commons. Um, they ended up bringing all these cultural consultants onto the film and ended up making what I consider to be like the most respectful piece of Disney cinema that has ever been made. And then it went on to become the number one highest grossing film in Mexico of all time. And so, I mean, I, you know, I look at that and I think there is a way, uh, to, to find a, you know, to, to, to find a sort of mutual relationship where people see Coco in Mexico and they think people are watching this in China and they're understand, they're learning about our culture and, and Disney has not like planted a flag in us in a way that we we take issue with you know and i it's just like i think that 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 particular balance is something that merits much much more ex exploration and is something that i imagine to the extent that you know massive corporations like that continue to exist which i i, I think they will i'm not i'm not a uh you know an an ideologue maximalist as far as decentralization is concerned um, you know, trees and, and mycelia live in balance with each other. Right. And so like, there's this, this question for me, which is like, you know, how do, you know, how do corporations find a way to sell us back to ourselves without like actually stealing from us? I, and I don't know, I don't know the answer to that, but I mean, that seems like an interesting case study. Well, I want to, I want to bring it back to time in that way. Cause I think you're, pointing in a really interesting direction and it, it makes me think of we i've been i've been watching jordan peterson's uh bible lectures and they're excellent and one of the things he talks about is the fall from the garden of eden is the descent into time like we were in this timeless space where every moment is fine and perfect and you know god is hanging out you know next door and he walks around the garden and you walk around the garden and it's like there's no calamity or no, no possibility of calamity. And then when they're sent out of, guard, of the Garden of Eden, it's basically the awareness that someday they're going to die. There's this future that they have to worry about. There's this finitude that they have to worry about. And that's the world that we're still in. And when we're talking about maximizing profit, I, I think if we're 
really super rational about it, maximizing profit does not mean maximizing profit. It means shortening the time frame, like picking an arbitrarily short time frame in which to maximize profit. Because I think really maximizing profit, which is, is what you might be alluding to a little bit here, involves playing on a time scale that is as close to infinite as we can. Because to the extent that we maximize profit at the expense of blowback that we are creating just out of necessity for the balance of life to restore itself, that's not actually profit maximization. And I think what um, Disney did with Coco, it sounds like in, in this uh, frame that you put it in, is play that game on a longer time scale. And I, I hypothesize that that's the direction to experiment in when it comes to reconciling profit with benefit. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So for part of last year, I was, I, I might have been the most briefly employed staffer for the Long Now Foundation, <laughs> like a six, six month contract for this this or, nonprofit org that thinks about trying to like help people think in a ten thousand year time frame. Um, but like long enough for me to really like internalize a lot of that and honor the inspiration that they've they've given me in these conversations. And I think you know part of what we're talking about here is actually the fact that like with Coco Disney, the super organism, the Archon became aware of its own microbiome or something like that, that the problem is that, you know, that much as we are tuned, you know, in our sensory motor and cognitive capacities to relate to reality at all of these different scales uh but like to to relate to it primarily through the the quote human scale you know to focus on things that are like at this level of resolution so too are governments and businesses and you know other other you know forms of agency and you know that when you know, when people say, well, like, oh, you know, the state doesn't care about you. It's like, well, how can it if it doesn't know you exist? And so to this, you know, this problem is, uh, you know, a, a problem that extends sort of laterally to concerns that I have about the role of artists in society and the fact that artists are just like chronically under-recognized and under-compensated, or for that matter, like visionaries of any kind, you know, like really like the, the sort of posthumous recognition of, you know, someone who came up with an idea, you know, that's, that's why is that the rule instead of the exception? And it's, it's because the incentive structures of society are misaligned with the incentives of individuals. Yes. I mean, and this is like, this is like why I'm so glad to be speaking to you on this, you know, right now, because it, you know, it really is a question of how do we allow, I mean, and, and honestly, like, I don't know that a lot of people are going to be happy with this answer because it, you know, it, like it kind of requires deeper surveillance um, on one level, right? Like you need to, you know, in order to be seen, you need to allow yourself to be seen. Like in order to be respected and fed, then you have to speak up um, or you have to be visible in a way to, you know, like again with the machine learning stuff, it's like, well, if you don't want, you know, if, if you're if you're in a, you know, an underrepresented ethnic group 
that is miscategorized by Google Photos as a as a gorilla or something, it's because you've been left out of the training data. It's because you're like below the radar, you know? And so you actually have to kind of participate in this thing in a deeper way uh, in order to get, you know, fair and equitable treatment. And so, I mean, this gets into like questions like the collective action problem of, of climate change is a really, you know, like clear and, and obvious instance where, you know, maybe you know what what is it going to take for us to care about empirical truth rather than the sort of social truth of you know like like you, you speak about this in your in your documents for this this project that that political bias gets in the way of of people actually you know that we're we're really really good at politically motivated uh innumeracy and actually like the the cl- the cleverer someone is the better they are at deceiving themselves in this respect um and and so you get these things where like people think that they're going to vote one way um you know Mirta Galasic's research at the Santa Fe Institute was was like why did the the Trump victory surprise all of the people all the people who were running the polls and it's because they were asking people who they thought they were going to vote for and not who they thought their friends were going to vote for. And it turns out who your friends are going to vote for is ultimately a greater determin- a greater determinant of your own decision than what your own personal values are. And and so like when it comes to, you know, these these sort of big abstract issues um, on Complexity Podcast, I had a conversation, episode 33 with, with Tim Culler and Martin Sheffer, who were looking at climate change and collective action problems. And it's a matter of like, it's a two-way thing. It's like, how do you take these enormous abstract realities and immanentize them at the level of the individual so that they become relevant? But then it's also the case that like, how do you take the the concerns and the needs of the individual and make them visible to a corporation or to a government? You know, and and I feel like projects like yours are starting to chip away at that predicament and and start to understand, like you said, Mike, how do we how do we aggregate information across time scales in a way that better serves the needs of, you know, that that are are I think probably always going to be in conflict. Or intention in some way between individuals and institutions, and or you know between between individual species and the ecosystems in which they participate, etc. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. The um, and I like the way you put it as a tension between those two things, as opposed to a conflict, because it seems sort of like there's a potential for a flywheel there once it gets going. Right now, it's a conflict just because it's sort of the best we've been able to do. Um, but once there's the right relationship but you know, between these two things, um, there doesn't have to be, I think. And the question of how do we get people to prioritize um, seeking a better understanding as opposed to a political preference or some other some other preference that people might have for any for a panoply of emotional reasons for which they cannot be blamed like there's a million reasons that people are completely innocent and in this and in general 
Um, those questions, yeah, are indeed completely foundational to what Idea Market is trying to do. And uh, I, I love that conversation. And I'm just constantly looking for more ways to uh, provoke that kind of curiosity and give people more reasons to prefer curiosity to uh, validation seeking and things like that. So I love that endeavor uh, in its entirety. One of the, just, just to bring something in here, one of the immediate problems I see here that we seem to be talking about, just to bring it back to time as well, um, is this notion of time preference and the problem of time preference in on a greater scale between the individual and society. And like the best place I've read about this, obviously it's a controversial book, but Hans Hermann Hopper's Democracy, the God that Failed talks about, that's his argument for why democracy as it in its current iteration is constantly failing is because if you give everyone a say then on a great scale those those say like your voice basically is completely dampened out and ends up meaning nothing so you just target yourself towards the shortest time preference so it's no longer like all right we've got this climate change thing which is this huge thing but you end up just doing a short time preference thing like well i'll just say i want like the potholes filled in the road because like well, my, no one's going to hear my voice anyway, so we need to, like, what's the point, right? So there's there's this just this massive problem of basically how can you sell long time preference to people, especially to the extent of yeah, like trust me, we really need to do this thing, but you're never going to get to see the benefits of it, really. You know that that's a hard sell. And I love the way you put this, Michael, when you said, how do we imminentize it? And I think that's the perfect way to frame that question, that it's not that people aren't aware that things like climate change are a problem. Uh, it's that it doesn't feel immediate. It feels like it's someone else's problem. It feels like nothing I do today. It feels like we're doomed. Yeah, it feels like we're doomed to a feeling of alienation with regard to solving it like no matter how much work i put in today or even the next 10 years i'm not going to like feel the benefit and be satisfied that i contributed something and so that that problem of imminentizing it i also really like um and there is also that same problem on at I feel like I'm way behind when it comes to the institution versus individual yes, attention <laughs> um scale itself okay. creates this tension. And I think I'm, I'm going to kind of reiterate some of the things that you're saying, but uh, I can't help myself because I've been thinking about this a lot. When, if you have a lemonade stand and someone drinks your lemonade and dies, it changes your life. It breaks your heart. It's like a, oh Speaking my goodness. Speaking from personal experience. Mm. No, I am not. Thank you for asking for clarity <laughs> yeah. there. I am not. Such this a, is pure metaphor. Weird lawsuit, lawsuit. Yeah. Pure metaphor. Standing. Here, I'm gonna I'm gonna drink my own lemonade on camera just to prove it. Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> so, and by the way, that's not lemonade. It's green. You know, don't don't write me things later. That's not lemonade. Um. So yeah, if 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 you have a personal relationship with a customer and something goes wrong, you feel it in your heart and it's like an issue. But if you're the CEO of Walmart and someone drinks Walmart's lemonade in Tuscaloosa and they die, it doesn't even reach your desk. Like the man being measure of all things means that when you scale man up and responsibility to the head of a global corporation, you know, when that guy scratches his arm, the skin cells that he kills are like tens of people. Like the, the, the scale of responsibility going up 
it is incomprehensible to a human when you give a human glo- like big responsibility like that. And there, there's only so much you can do to, you know, tell the CEO to pay better attention or something like that. Like it's not really a solvable problem at that level. So I really like that idea and the concept of imminentizing consequences and responsibilities. Uh, that seems like a really important factor in graduating from this sort of behemoth versus microbe, you know, relationship that corporations and individuals currently enjoy. Well, I mean, there's that's you you surface for me a related issue uh, that I think also feeds into this, which is the question of the asymmetry of power in the first place. You know, like okay, we can do something to like you said, it's, 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 it's not perfectly soluble, you know, like there's just no way that you can really continue to give somebody that much power without it resulting in violence. And so, uh, you know, like before we were starting this call, we were talking about our guitars on the wall and I was telling you about how like this, this guitar behind me, I've been, you know, for the first time in, you know, my, 20 plus years of writing songs, I felt like, oh, here's a guitar for protest songs. And I got it right around the time that they were having the George Floyd and Breonna Taylor protests and, you know, in the last year. And I was thinking a lot about the work of physicist Jeffrey West at the Santa Fe Institute, whom I was interviewing for Complexity Podcast around the same time, and how he talks about, you know, physical scaling laws in society and how the cardiovascular system of an organism has to branch at more and more points as the organism scales. I forget the exact number, but like a tiny creature, like a mouse, you know, from the aorta to the capillaries, there's like maybe three branch points. And then in something like an elephant, it's like nine. And so, you know, the, the number of layers of, of governance in order to reduce friction has to grow. Like the number of decision branch points, you know, like the number of layers at which the the decision making is flowing has to grow as as something scales. And so, like, this has really shaped my thinking on the whole conversation around defunding the police, because I think what we're really talking about, and I wrote this whole song about it that I'm I'm working on in the studio right now because I'm behind on everything, but because a human being doesn't scale and we've all taken on more work than we can actually do, um, you know, and I'm going to have to assign digital clones of myself to finish my opus after my death. But like the, you know, I've got this, this song that's about sort of, you know, a, a, an argument for uh, fractal anarcho syndicalism in a, you know, a, uh, a, you know, a biophysical network called we police ourselves, which is just about like, you know, like I was, I was talking with my friend JF Martel, who's the co-host of weird studies this morning, right before we, that's who I was talking to, right? When we hopped Sorry, on did the call. Did you say weird studies? Weird studies, which is one of my favorite podcasts. And, um, that's interesting. I'm gonna have to check that out. Yeah. They're, they're, they're fabulous, uh, art and philosophy show, but right. you know, J- JF and I were talking about trying to um like this this balance you know like the tension between centralization and decentralization and i think a lot of people when they when they say they want to decentralize something what they actually mean is they want to distribute the strain 
of a system that actually does benefit from having some measure, like some kinds of centralization, like an aorta, but like you don't actually want, like, how do you, how do you restore proper boundaries around an individual so that we can stay sane in a networked society uh, so that we're not taking on too much, but you do it, you do it by decentralizing at a different layer. And so like the, the whole, anyway, this is kind of word salad, <laughs> but, but the, the, the whole thing with like defunding the police is not just like that function in one form or another, I think is, uh, you know, that's, that's just strongly convergent. Like that's not going away. Um, it does minimize violence, but the problem is that we're putting all of these responsibilities on police officers that don't belong to them or should not, should not belong to them. You know, like you should not be calling in a cop to address you know, a homeless person who's going to lose, you know, is going to lose it if somebody shows up with guns, you know, or like is, uh, you know, I worked in, in, as an artist musician at festivals for years and, you know, because of the rave act in the United States, um, we have the situation where festivals are accountable for the drug use of people at festivals. And so if someone ends up in an ambulance because they overdosed, then, uh, that ends up ruining the, you know, like that, the part they're going to be, you know, faced with all of these, these, you know, legal charges and so on. When in reality, like most of the time that person might just need, you know, Thorazine or a glass of water or a blanket, you know, and I found myself having to act in these roles, uh, as like the de facto psychedelic, my friends and I, who were, you know, out there at these events were acting as the sort of like underground psychedelic harm reduction team for these events so that it was never escalated to a point where it became visible to a system that has no, it's like binary. It's like either, either there isn't a problem or there's a fatal problem, you know? And so, yeah, that's, that's, uh, probably where I should stop this rap. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, uh, I, the fact that you're, uh, putting a lid on yourself makes me wonder what you're tempted to say. Um, but I'm fascinated by that role that, uh, you chose to play. And I like the idea of fractalizing, uh, kind of responsibility down to the individual level more in that way. And there are two aspects of the crypto world that are moving in this direction. Of course, you have DAOs. You know, decentralized autonomous organizations that are using cryptographic uh, voting rights and things like that to coordinate uh, without massive centralization of power. And from the kinds of issues you're raising, it strikes me that the need for philosophers in the design space here is extraordinary because what DAOs are going to do is redistribute power cryptographically, which is going to make it, it's going, and that that's going to have both upsides and downsides. And the, the upsides are, are talked about a lot, um, that you can be secure that your position in the network is what the code says it is. You're not just going to be yanked out by some, uh, you know, SS officer or something like that. Um, and the downside is there's a certain uh, brittleness I don't want to say but there's a certain like rigidity of of code that makes it hard to adjust and yes you can have communities vote to change things and whatnot 
Um, but in the same way that now we are sort of collectively reaping the consequences of all the philosophical nuances we overlooked for practical reasons. Um, and, you know, these tiny, tiny gaps in our, in our metaphors have become gaping holes and things are falling into it all the time, like at the, in a disaster movie. When we do that at the cryptographic level, two things are going to happen. One, there's going to be a ton of hope that this is never going to fail and it's perfect to look. It's all math. And that is going to cause way too much faith to be placed in the philosophical flawlessness of all these uh, new institutions and infrastructures that we're building. So that by the time we realize, oh, I didn't think about that. And now Facebook owns the moon or whatever. <laughs> there's going to be, there's going to be some hell to pay. Like for every, for every, you know, harmony that, philosophically sound design can create now is a crisis that is going to be averted in the future. And so I would be really interested to see what kind of impact uh, your feedback and people who think like you could have on the crypto space. Well, I'm here for it. If you're listening and you, you know, you want to onboard a philosophical advisor then yeah. let's talk. Please, please hire this guy. A venture capitalist, uh, Andreessen Horowitz, get your portfolio projects and hire, hire, hire Mike Garfield and, and make, make him, make, make him be the, you know, red team on, on all your projects, uh, issues. Cause if you're going to take over the world, you'd be you better do it. Well, man, like we're getting well, tired of this. My, my one month old son is named Ian after Ian Malcolm, who ostensibly was a mathematician at the Santa Fe Institute and, and uh, is the sort of, in my mind, the sort of, uh, you know, the zenith of fictional red team contribution. Uh, Precisely. I, 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 I Precisely. read that book at age seven and, it, and now I have a Jurassic Park tattoo I got at 18. Like that is, nice. that is my, that's, that is the frame in which I, I regard all of these knock-on effects in the modern age. I think that, that it is actually just minted an NFT of the song I wrote about, about, uh, this quoting Ian Malcolm at length, um, in the song. I mean, cause yeah, cause it is, it is ultimately, I mean, I think there are a number of reasons for us to engage in epistemic humility right and and it's not just i mean i think it, it it's there is actually a clear incentive here and uh, you know uh john keats has this phrase negative capability which is you know regarding the awareness of one's ignorance as a positive trait you know as something that you actually you actually want to like lean into this and and you know from a complex systems view i think that what you know it's it's relatively easy to argue i think now compared to maybe even just a few years ago that you know when you start seeing companies bringing on more of this kind of like red team stuff like like um the bmw group i hear has a department of internal disruption you know, and it's like, well, if you live in a world where the environmental features are inherently unstable, you know, like it's just so much harder 
for us in the 21st century to tell ourselves a cosmological story in which the world is static. Like you're talking about the fall, you know, like that's, that's a world in which you are going to do the same job as your, your parents and their parents and the parents, you know, their parents. And that's clearly not the case. It's like, I'm, you know, in, in some respects, the, the generation is now not, you know, the human generation, it's the generation of information technologies. And so, you know, you are, sort of your own grandparents in this weird way as you as you like live through these multiple epochs of of you know new you know new structures and so you know in that in that kind of a space you know this is when like alan moore back in uh, what is it like the 2004 documentary on graphic novelist alan moore where he was talking about society going through this transition from a a liquid to a gas, you know, and, and it's like, you know, this it's, I don't think it's a mistake that we, we talk about like cloud computing, like cloud servers. And at any rate, the, you know, I think the point is that there is much more now than there was a clear argument and incentive for remaining open in one's strategy and in one's models and in, you know, and in accepting an inherent and in a unavoidable pluralism of models, because we're at a point now where, and I'll, I'll send you a link for the, the show notes to this episode I had with the president of, of SFI on market crashes and mass extinctions and how like the, the organisms that survive through these punctuations are generalists. Um, you know, a mature ecosystem develops all these like narrowly specified niches that uh, are really, really brittle against disruptions. And and at the same time, you know, you go all the way back to the origins of complex system science with Bob May of the Royal Society in his 1972 paper, um, Will a Complex System Be Stable? That, you know, he, he, he made this mathematical argument that's in, uh, counterintuitive to a lot of people, which was that basically the more complex something is the more the more it's likely to disrupt itself catastrophically and so like here we are global economy you know it's like we we're living Jurassic Park in the you know to the extent that zoonotic diseases and or you know escaped gain of function experiments whatever your story that we're the the the, the landscape of our world now is characterized by these ruptures you know it's characterized by the you know invasive species and cancers and you know uh, autoimmune disorders and you know the the uh, one you know the activity of human beings on our human time scale leaving geological effects you know with like the anthropocene conversation so yeah so like we have a i think you know it's it's easier than it's ever been to make to pitch the value pr proposition that we need to keep ourselves open to the unknown and, and to, you know, the, the disregarded. And, uh, so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, on that, I mean, um, it seems to be like a, a notion of like brain plasticity, right? So when, when I was younger, obviously seeing the, seeing the internet come into 
full force being in that which will, generation which will eventually be rare where you literally saw three or four computers in an entire school and by the end of my school schooling it was like every room was just full of computers it was like yeah this is here to stay right um so that transition stage between of what was maybe what 10 years between basically some people using internet for extremely specific purposes to playing flash games with your mates in the computer hall like really quickly um and i remember thinking oh this will be the last time because i remember then at that at that young age seeing old people who are really struggling with it and thinking well this will be the last time there's ever really a technological problem or leap like this because we we're now like all completely embedded in this culture and in time like right now i've realized actually that's completely wrong right because it's i don't think it's anything to do with the actual technology itself like how the ui is how you use it which seems to be what it appears to be right like what do you mean you you don't get how this works it doesn't seem to be anything to do with that it seems to be something like deeper and more abstract to do with the content and what it actually represents in terms of the culture and whether or not people actually want to like deal with it and apprehend it right because i'm i've basically turned into a real curmudgeon with pc software people are like dude you really need to use this new thing and i'm like the equivalent now of sort of using a rotary phone right i've got the software i like using even if it takes me an hour longer i still do that and it's the same with the nft things it's like i get it but at the same time my brain's like real old man like why would they buy a picture of a monkey i don't understand i don't understand this so it seems to be to do with the plasticity of whether or not you can really allow yourself to basically go into that horizon that new horizon right that seems to be what's keeping people back is whether or not you're like okay right we, we, we need to something really needs to be remolded to you know it's nothing to do with this like empirical physical technology it's some it's what that technology represents once again it's the, yeah. the medium the medium is the message once again right McLuhan McLuhan he got it right he just keeps winning yeah yeah patron saint I, I I'll just you know I'll say that like the chapter that I've been stuck on in in this book sort of like the final piece of this book that I've been writing is about uh, neoteny and and pedomorphosis and neuroplasticity and and you know the fact that like to again like I'm not like you know super religious or whatever but I, I find that these the metaphors encoded in in various wisdom traditions are robust for a reason and there's something about the you know the gnostic uh like the 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 gospel of thomas and jesus saying you know you don't enter the the kingdom of heaven uh as an adult you enter as a child and you know when you think about uh i think he said that it, in some other places too yeah yeah he did so I, something like that yeah yeah that yeah this i'm like i said not a bible scholar but like yeah no the, worries neither am i <laughs> but the you know w when you look when you compare human beings to other primates we're basically sexually mature children you know like we yeah, retain absolutely. this neuroplasticity well into adulthood and when you look at vertebrates relative to other organisms again like the you know the the sort of basal chordate is this thing called a sea squirt that has a head and a tail as a larval form, but then eventually settles down and anchors itself to a rock and becomes a, a, a filter feeder. And it's like, it's about at what point, you know, are you moving from an, in like child developmental psychology terms, from explore to exploit 
You know, like at what point do you find a, you know, a stable situation that you can just milk? Um, and, uh, uh, you know, and, and so like, I, and I'll, I'll share this episode with you too, about like, I really believe that this is what's dominating the modern conversation around lifelong learning, you know, because we are at that point where we need to figure out how it is that we remain neuroplastic well into our adulthood and do not become curmudgeons and, and burnouts in our thirties or twenties, you know, and, and this is something that, that I, you know, completely preoccupies me because, uh, I mean, I think it, you know, for what it's worth, you know, as, as somebody like who spends a lot of time in conversations around psychedelics, I think this is why, uh, ketamine has become such a, a hot topic. You know, it's one of the reasons why it seems like this has become so much more, uh, visible lately because it's, it's an NMDA agonist. It's, uh, and so, I mean, it's actually, it's, it's reopening a critical learning window in the brain by, by like modulating, you know, glutamine receptor activity in such a way that, that, uh, the growth of new neuronal connections much more closely resembles what's going on in, in early childhood or, or adolescence, you know, and that's why it's, that's why it's so, uh, so easily utilized for the treatment of depression and trauma because you know basically those as i understand them those conditions are uh the brain as a machine learning algorithm overfitting itself to its training data you know there's like this that like you're you're sort of reopening this this like scope of subjective probability or possibility you know and and allowing allowing something childlike to sort of reestablish itself in your brain, being able to grow yeah. out of a trauma. So, yeah. You know. and I, I think there's a, a metaphor therapeutic angle to take there too, in the same way that we're talking about metaphors, unlocking possibilities. Uh, I think we've reached a stage. I don't, maybe this has always been true, but the metaphor of skepticism being like the wise thing to do ends up kind of, you know, putting blinders on people and keeping them in their lane epistemically. And something I've, I've been writing and thinking a lot about recently is the risk-benefit analysis of credulity, of basically believing everything by default and letting the contradictions sort themselves out. And it seems like, especially in a world where information is super abundant and technology is changing really fast and there's all kinds of nefarious incentive structures uh, messing with people all the time. Um, The being aware of the whole field of possibilities is way more advantageous than trying to categorically avoid error, which is impossible in the first place. Um, And that's one of the reasons that I really like the risk management metaphor for knowledge so much. That if we're thinking of knowledge and especially common knowledge as a risk management problem, we will be surprised less. We will be open to the confirmation of a wider variety of hypotheses. Uh, We will have more explanatory power. We will tend, we'll gravitate toward the explanations that have the greatest explanatory power for all of the information that's out there, not just the favorite or the preferred or the trendy information. And this gives you know, a lot more resilience and agility and honesty 
than the sort of there is one objective truth, these few people decide what it is, and then you must obey a kind of kind of model. Um, and I, I think one of the one of the key things that one of the key ways that this aligns with what you're saying is such a, an approach, like a risk management approach is founded on the fundamental uncertainty of knowledge and of our understanding of things. There's no pretense that we have the answers. There's hopefully no settling into uh, grooves of neurobrittleness, you might say. Um, and so I'm, I'm excited about the potential of this metaphor of risk management to create a social environment where it's permissible and encouraged to let oneself be more open in that kind of childlike way. So I've got a question for you, if I may. Oh, boy. Jim. Oh, please, please, by all means. <laughs> because, you know, I think I've already established in this conversation that, you know, like if I have a concern about the tokenization of everything, it is that it does seem to emphasize uh, risk mitigation or risk management over fundamental uncertainty, you know, over, you know, um, over us realizing that, you know, ex admitting that we don't know how to properly quantize value, you know, and, and so, you know, like recently when I spoke to the, the new board chair for SFI, Catherine Collins, who wrote a book about, about investing through the lens of biomimicry. And she, you know, she was. That she sounds awesome, of, by the way. It is. It's called The Nature of Investing. It's episode 66 of Complexity Podcast. I'll send you the link. Um, you know, she makes this distinction between risk and uncertainty in that, you know, risk is an unknown amount of a known variable. And, whereas uncertainty is, are we even using the correct like, do we even have the right variables? You know, like, are the respective causal contributions uh, properly, you know, uh, formalized or encoded in the way that we're thinking about this in the first place? You know, um, and and so you know, the issue of fundamental uncertainty in another conversation that hasn't come out yet on that show with with economist uh, Brian Arthur, who you know a complete silverback and amazing elder in, in, you know, complexity economics, whose work on the evolution of technology is, is really inspiring to me. Um, but you know, he wrote this paper recently, uh, economics and nouns and verbs, where he basically says we can't properly model these non-equilibrium adaptive systems with equations because of this issue, because equations are, are emphasizing the, you know, that we, we've like laid out the variables and that basically the, the shift from sort of 19th century science to complex system science with, you know, a, a, a you know, that pays its full respect to this fundamental uncertainty is a shift into algorithms, which is why like, you know, you don't get deterministic kind of mathematical models that fully and you know that you can 
you know, you're still, you're dealing with these, you know, chaotic and complex dynamics that, um, you know, you just have to run the simulation, you know, and then it, the simulation comes out in a weird way. So you tweak the parameters of the simulation. And so it's more about, um, it's, it's a, it's a philosophical shift from sort of an object-based philosophy to a process philosophy. And so, you know, I don't know, I'm just, I'm just curious for you, how you think about that and like what ways, if any, we can kind of use what you're building or more broadly, like use the affordances of web three to, to actually start addressing things at that level, you know? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I love the distinction between object-based and process-based philosophy. Uh, that's occurred to me a little bit. And I think uh, that's absolutely the right direction to go because the linearity of object-based philosophy creates um, like Goethe's incompleteness theorem and things like that. It makes it so that we can't have coherence and then the, you know, the incoherent things just clash and then you have intractable problems. And uh, one of the things I've been thinking about recently is that stories are more like the fundamental units of understanding and that they can be tautological without being nonsensical. And when you're in a story, you can fit any data into that story in a, in a certain role. And so it's really the stories that we tell about the world that we're in or whatever the case may be, that brings meaning and significance or lack thereof, that brings priorities to the raw information that we get. And by focusing on the raw information, there's sort of this implication that the story will force itself upon you from the information. No, it won't. There's going to be some you know, precedent that we might inherit that creates a story for us, or there might be a story imposed on us or between competitors for our uh, attention or predictability or whatever, but the data is never going to impose a story. Um, and so the process-based philosophy, I think is a, a key shift to make. And it's too complicated to just be advocating for like, hey, you should become a process-based philosopher. I think we have to build the infrastructure that makes that the default assumption without requiring any effort on people's behalf. And I like, I still like markets for this because when uh, investors are competing, when they're placing bets, what they're really doing is placing a hypothesis on a story. Because in general, especially in the internet age, all the investors in a certain asset class or asset have access to the same information. And the differences in people's beliefs about it is which story arc that information lies on, what it means. So ultimately, all kinds of investing in markets and trading seem to be proxies for betting on stories. We use the price of oil, we bet on the price of oil, oil in a way that implies something about what its current price means about where it's going to be. And when we talk about fundamental value, well, fundamental value comes from the story we tell about the data that we have. So, idea market 
I'm hoping can take this to a one, one level more meta, one level more abstract, where we're sort of betting on the storytellers and the stories themselves directly without using assets as a proxy. James? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm behind idea market. My boss is right here, so I can't, I can't say anything bad, right? <laughs> yeah, I have my goon behind your, uh, behind your door there. Did that make sense, or was that just super weird and abstract? No, I mean, I, 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 I tend to think that it's sort of like we're, we were talking about earlier with respect to, you know, recognizing brands through color or something. That like story does seem to be the, the fundament of human cognition, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, the way I would kind of try to rephrase what you just said in a, in my own, not my language, but like the language I use is that, um, we, we organize our lives through story. Yeah, um, story is and, the active ingredient in epistemology. I think like we right. think it's data, but it's actually, that's the thing that makes the actual difference. And yeah. Right. And, and you know, so like, for example, uh, SFI external professors, uh, Danny Bassett at, um, where is she? I forget. Anyway, D Danielle Bassett talks about, she gave this, this talk called networks thinking themselves. And she was the one who introduced me to this notion that narrative is the way that we encode a least effort path through a complex network. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like, yeah, that, that like there is, you know, that there may be a million different ways to learn a particular curriculum ultimately. Um, and so like on some level, you know, I remember, uh, actually Terrence McKenna wrote about this in his, his essay on Philip K. Dick, where he's like, you know, as storytellers, we have to, we have to create a beginning, a middle and an end, but you know, we know that on some level, that's not the way the world actually is, but that's how we convey this to one another because you know there is like the you know water can run a million different ways down a mountain but there's going to be one way where it's not like where it's it's sort of running uphill the least yeah you know yeah and yes. and so yeah and so like in that sense you know we are trained to to I recognize and identify stories and like Tyson Yunkaporta, who I recently had on Future Fossils, who runs the Indigenous Knowledge Systems Lab and in, in uh, at Deakin University in, in Australia, did some recent research on uh, memory techniques used by Australian Aboriginals and comparing them, comparing the narrative compression uh, of memory in a landscape, a story that you tell about a path through a landscape and how that differs from, and it appears to be in, in their preliminary results, uh, a superior way to encode information to the, the comparable Western approach, which is the memory palace, which is this, you know, it's, it's similar in some respects where you're like, you're imagining this enormous architecture in which you you know, you, you assign a particular piece of information to a particular room or an object in the room in your imagination. And like people are capable of memorizing the old Testament like this, but, um, probably the best memory artists in the West were actually using, we're, we're cutting a path through that palace, 
you know, we're telling a story about how they navigate that blueprint and not just like dropping themselves in there without, you know, some sort of vector to traverse. So in that respect, yes, I think that, you know, there's this, we have to hold this sort of um, dual understanding that, that, uh, you know, the, the information is fundamental, but the story is also fundamental. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you could even say we've always had infinite information. Like when we were just walking around in nature, we could have decided that, you know, this particular blade of grass was really, really important. And we could have decided to orient by a variety of different things. Um, there's palm reading and tea leaf reading and astrology and stuff like that. I actually don't think that's bunk. It's just people are deciding to orient toward meaning and ref as reflected in different like chaotic things. So I think, you know, there's, there's some merit in a certain way to all those things because the universe is weird and kooky and holographic like that. But uh, I, I think the point is narrative is the essence of curation in a way that can't really be avoided because narratives decide what's important and what's not without any extra effort. And there's no point in our lives when that's not the case. So actually there's, Oh, go ahead. No, no, no. I was going to say, I thought you were talking and it was on, it was on mute. I was just going to say you're on mute. It's cool. Oh yeah. No, I was going to say, I, um, I brought up the tarot once on complexity podcast and, and got my, my knuckles slapped for it. But, uh, in arguing the merits of, thinking about things in precisely the way that you just described, I found this paper in uh, MDPI, which is an uh, in, in entropy journal, which is a, you know, a, a legitimate, right. Uh, a, you know, a, an esteemed uh, information theoretical peer reviewed journal uh, called information and signs, the language of images by Inesimetsky at uh, the University of Newcastle. Again, I don't know what it is about Australians, but they don't, the, the antipodal folks don't seem to have the same kind of problem as us Northerners for some reason. But it was about the tarot and, and information encoded in the tarot and, and you know, how this, this uh, she says, at the level of our real experiences, we say that we step in the experiential life world and by means of information processing began to understand the meanings of this and subsequent experiences. We become wiser and our consciousness expands to accommodate and realize that which presented itself as just invisible information. Citing Lloyd, it is nothing wrong with beginning from nothing. Uh, for example, the positive numbers begin from zero. Indeed, the fool is followed by the picture indicating the Roman numeral one and the magician, et cetera. So like there's, they're actually like, there are people out there that, you know, that recognize that these, these tools, while they may not fit again within the, the story, the narrative of modernity and, and it's expulsion of the, the irrational, um, they're, they're coming back to the way that these, these cognitive adjuncts did in fact encode meaningful information in sort of, you know, pre-modern decision-making processes. And I think that, I mean, that's, that's, you're seeing the exact same thing happen in the way that, you know, the science is coming back to finding 
you know, quantitative justification for indigenous land management practices or folk med- medical traditions or, you know, I mean, it's just, it's, it's hilarious to me in a way because, uh, you know, uh, n- we're, you know, it's the same thing around, around, um, you know, the neuroscience of like realizing that you become consciously aware of a decision after you've already made it. And so in a way, I think that that's really what the sort of the conscious realm of, you know, science, scientific modernism, that's the relationship it has to this much, much broader base of human understanding is that it's constantly behind the curve, actually, in as much as that what it does is merely formalize and make more sort of legible or interoperable within a given context, these things that, uh, you know, require work to sort of justify to a modern mind, but are nonetheless intelligent in their own right. And this is just as an as an aside. I think that this is where we can sort of square the circle of evolutionary theory and intelligent design. It's like it's it's you know there there is an intelligence here. There's landscape agency. You know, there's material agency. There you know there's the you know the distributed nested cognition of of evolutionary agents if looking at work of people like Michael Levin at Tufts you know and so i you know it's i think it's just in a way the modern project is actually just in my opinion and this is like completely heretical to some people but i think it really is just sort of like finding a way to uh substantiate bolster and and like support for a broader swath of perspectives that which is already the case um but yeah 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 go ahead i i was gonna say i mean you mentioned the tarot and whenever people mention the tarot uh i sort of like to like Elbow Actually, okay. I want to. Because... I want. Can I? I want to comment on something more boring before, I, and then I want to l- open up that rat hole. Is that okay, James? <laughs> okay. Yeah, and I'm really glad. Like this. This is me sort of like coaxing you out onto the dance floor, James. I, I, yeah, I want. No, I want no, your you occult mentioned. authority here. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I have. I have. I feel obligated to you know disappoint people for a couple seconds while I talk about something abstract. And the, um, the idea of formalizing something that has already in some way been known by you know, people in different cultures in different ways and just kind of trying to give it a universal language, I think is one of the uh, potentially big contributions of modern science that there was, it was not so much discovering things for the first time, but systematizing uh, the organization of knowledge in such a way that when a discovery was made, it could be instantly distributed to people who speak the same language. It was like a language for taking sort of, sort of for doing what, what idea market wants to do, which is taking discoveries from the individual and immediately like borging that knowledge into the collective because they all speak the same language. Oh, I'm so glad to get that reference. Uh, uh, yeah. The end. You lose a lot in, in the establishment of standards too. It's worth, it's worth noting. Like you lose, yes. you know, it's, it's, it's not, yeah. it's not a purely, uh, you know, uh, normative p- positive, I guess. Right. Like there's, there's a lot of implied ontology that then has big tail costs and uh, absolutely. And I think that's, that's the wall that we're running into now that we've kind of 
accrued so much epistemic debt that now we're like running into this wall where our expectations used to lead. And there, you know, some things need revision now that this systemization of knowledge is not as useful as it, as it used to be. And we have to graduate from it. Right. Or, or like my buddy, uh, Gordon Brander just wrote a piece on, on, uh, how it's, it's the tension between creativity and convenience, you know, like we can't make everything too convenient or we lose that, that possibility. Yeah. It's it, again, back to sort of like getting prematurely old rather than like, you know, staying plastic. But yeah, James, please jump on my. I, mean, I can, yeah, no, I can tie. A, I can tie loads of threads together here, right? Because I mean, there's a problem. I think Mike, we've sort of come up against somewhat an idea idea market, even though idea market sort of acts as a function, and especially with a lot of people who are venturing into uh, epistemic questions, right? Is is they don't uh, before they start, they don't deal with their own bias, like before you. People, people, you know, let's, if we began from like the Socratic principle of like, you need to know yourself, a lot of people assign things to themselves, which they don't actually have before you, before they seek to know themselves, right? So they don't, they, but you, you begin from this place where you already have a motivated reasoning or a motivated bias or something is already there, which you're so oblivious to before you even begin your like epistemic, you know, escapades out. And then you, then the problem is you get to a wall where, there's just a hypocrisy or there's a paradox which there is no surmounting so you either ignore it and you like try retreat to comfort or find some way to reason it out or like you just have to the whole thing collapses right it just doesn't work or the real dangerous thing you just keep going right and you like it's still there so anyway to bring this back to the tarot and and the the whole thing that sort of happened there that I always comment is like with the tarot and astrology these these days, if someone says like, ah, oh, if someone basically said to me, if I went on a date and they were like, what's your star sign? I probably, I just leave. Right. Cause I'm like, it basically means you've read all the way to the back of the television magazine. So not only are you into modern astrology, you also watch TV, which is like two awful things in one. Right. But modern astrology is basically Barnum statements, right? That's the problem. It's like, oh, on Tuesday, you'll do something creative, right? These statements, which just apply so loosely and you read them you're like oh wow you know like is you sort of say these things to people or like pick up artists use them a lot to pick up women actually uh just to give an example one is um oh you're the kind of person who like never got the opportunity to be as creative as you could be it's like what what does that even mean? you know it's this these statements which just apply to everything anyway my point being is that actually astrology uh and the tarot were really modernized and these are things which are about figuring out what's going to happen in the future, right? Uh, they, were, they were completely modernized. And um, I grew up with a grandparent who knew how to read the tarot. And everyone always goes, oh, she'll never tell you anything bad. And I was like, well, this kind of sucks. Like, I, I kind of want to really know the bad stuff. Like, if the future is always good, then I'm not worried about it. And this whole thing, this whole exercise is useless. Because what's the point in it, right? Uh, the same with uh, astrology. There's never anything bad. It's always like, oh, this sign's doing this, and there might be some point being anyway. That when the, before they got modernized, your natal chart and your tarot readings these were brutal. They were like, yeah, we've done your you've done your natal chart. Guess what? Your life's going to be really boring. It's going to suck, and you're going to die at like forty. And we and we know that, right? And whether or not you believe in these things or not, the point was, oh, you you wanted epistemology, you wanted an epistemic thing. Yeah, oh, we've got it. We did it. 
And guess what? Like, it's not always in your favor, by the way. it's We've got the data. Your life's going to suck. You really shouldn't have asked us to do this. And then it was just after the Victorian era because the Victorians were like, give it, you know, like, <laughs> give it to me straight. You know, like, hit me as hard as you can. And then after that era, people wanted more like, oh, God, I didn't really want to know that. Can we soften the blow? And then it turned into this sort of uh, industry of basically an epistemology of comfort. You go somewhere, give someone a bit of money. Basically, the equivalent of modern education. I'm paying you for a degree, therefore I should get the degree at the end. And that value proposition alters the whole arrangement. Like, you can't be a customer of truth. That's what I'd say. You can't be a customer of truth. You can't, because as soon as there's this, like, indebtedness, you feel you're owed something. But truth doesn't owe you anything. Truth owes you jack. Yeah, actually, you know, that's that's uh, related, I think, it, you know, to to weave that back into the issue of, of uh, prediction markets. That seems related to me to the this this plague that has taken over at least American politics uh, of regarding, you know, like the, the at some point there was a bait and switch and we swapped out the notion of the citizen for the notion of the consumer. And. So we're no longer, you know, that that we're we're electing people that are basically selling us on a particular story. I know exactly and, when this was, by the way, or I have a oh, theory please, about yeah. it. But, okay. So uh, one of my favorite documentaries is Century of the Self. It's kind of required homework for all of my friends. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so uh, I will. I will. I. I will recount what you certainly already know in that case, which is when, I guess between World War I and II, when American life started to be generally satisfied. We generally had the tools that we needed. It's no longer about like, here is shampoo because you don't have shampoo. Like when that when marketing switched from that to everyone has shampoo, how do we keep selling shampoo? It became about selling desire, selling wants, selling preferences, selling self-expression rather than selling to meet critical needs. And this was all completely uh, engineered and designed and scientifically tested and developed. Uh, and thought, the efforts were led the by the time, nephew of Sigmund Freud, Edward Bernays, who I hope many of my listeners know. And if not, look that man up because his influence on history is absolutely critical. And the, the paradigm switched from citizens to consumers in that sense because the corporate uh, mechanisms needed to find ways to continue selling the things that they now had an incredible opportunity to produce. And so America kind of switched from a state where it's about governance and citizenship and rights to something more like a farm where it's about optimization of yield and what can we extract from the public and how can we optimize to make them produce that as much as we can and resist the harvest as much as we or not resist the harvest acquiesce to the harvest as much as we can and i think we're kind of reaching the uh, the breaking point of that now that, you know, the farming has gone from uh, 
money on consumerist objects, buying dresses and cars and makeup and things like that, to farming attention. And that's, we're really becoming aware of that being the dominant model now and all of the uh, hidden costs of optimizing for for farming attention in this really sort of deceptive and thieving sort of a way, this sort of mind hacking, this sort of mimetic engineering sort of way that we are basically being designed as a society to cough up our attention at the slightest provocation and to be easily harvested for our attention. And um, that's that's what Idea Market is, is trying to experiment with uh, inoculating ourselves against as a society. So there's a, a, an essay that or an article that comes to mind that seems like it exists kind of at the center of the network of everything we've been talking about today, which is a piece that uh, two SFI folks last year, Sam Bowles and Wendy Carlin wrote for Vox EU called The Coming Battle for the COVID-19 Narrative. And so this is, I'll, I'll send you this. Um, this is, uh, Sam Bowles is a sort of famous leftist economist who wrote the, the moral economy and, uh, he wrote other, he wrote, a, I forget the name of it, schooling in America, I think with Herbert Gintis, which was a takedown of the way that the American educational system serves these sort of, you know, uh, capitalist power structures. And he and has also contributed in, in a, a key way to this this new project core econ which is an an open platform introductory economics uh, courseware that recenters the economics conversation on uh like values that actually matter and on you know like how people actually think about this rather than sort of the way that we're taught to think about it in in economics 101 and a lot of his work centers on the fact that incentive structures do not necessarily guarantee moral behavior because like as in in a more recent work he's he's shown you know that um you know you get these sort of blowbacks where you by incentivizing something, you're actually decentering someone's accountability or like sense of moral participation in something. And so, you know, the problem, the you know, the beyond the problem of simply, uh, you know, using like gamifying politics in the way that we're talking about here, and you know, trying to like capture value and 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 you know, attention and so on. He wrote this piece with Wendy Carlin that that talks about how traditionally policy is considered or like social dynamics are considered on this, pardon me, the spectrum between the market and the state. And he's like, actually, it's a three pole system with the market, the state, and uh, what, you know, you might think of as sort of... uh, what they call civil society, which is like mutual aid networks, organ donation, uh, you know, neighborhood politics, the church, the rugby club, 
you know, the, like this, this, what, you know, this mesoscopic level that has been eroded by both state power and market power over the last several centuries. Like I, I talked about this with Tyson Yunka Porta and we, we kind of both looked back, you know, uh, Joseph Heinrich has this, or Henrik has this book, uh, the weirdest people in the world that makes the case that it was actually marital taboos and instantiated by the Pope where they said, you have to marry outside of your community and as a way of breaking up, uh, like tribal and clan structure so as to harvest value more effectively from individuals, you know, and that, you know, Henrik's got this whole argument for like why it is that this is actually so powerful uh, in terms of like why the West has conquered uh, the world, you know, because it's this, it's, you know, to, to uh, break up stuff on this level, it actually like opens up this whole new economy of scale and, and so on. But, you know, the, what, what Bowles and Carlin are arguing is that, you know, COVID has made clear that not all problems can be solved by the market or by state power. And that, in fact, you know, like as soon as ever all the businesses are closed and, you know, people can't go to church and something, we suddenly realize that, that this, what is it, what was at least at one time, the major locus of governance among human beings has been entirely outboarded to those two domains and that you know that as this thing you know grows to a point that it begins to undermine itself and break down that suddenly the the you know the family level and the neighborhood level uh, and the community level of governance become so obviously important and undernourished in this and that, you know, the real, you know, they're, they, you know, basically that civil society, which is not motivated by profit, nor is it motivated by coercion is actually like the way that we have to address. It's like the layer at which we have to address a lot of these predicaments and that they are predicaments because we have forgotten you know, because we've been like, you know, attacked and gaslit for centuries that like, this is actually where, where, you know, this locus of power has to be restored. Uh, you know, at, at, and I, I think a lot of people in the crypto world are going to agree with this in, in as much as they're like, yeah, finally, we're, we're capable of generational wealth again. You know, we're capable of, of wealth that's like held by a family rather than, you know, uh, by people with, you know, the custodianship of institutions, et cetera. Um, and, you know, and, and what this means for prediction markets, I'm not really sure. Uh, but I mean, I think it's this, you know, just to sort of like tie a bow on comments I made at the beginning of this conversation about how a lot of what really matters in this world cannot be quantified, you know, Absolutely. Uh, I think this Absolutely. is, this is kind of where it hits the, the street level you know yeah absolutely and the impossibility of, of quantification is why uh idea market refrains from defining things on uh on other people's behalf to the greatest extent that we can and i think prediction markets have a, a severe limitation in that in order to settle a yes or no question you have to define what yes and no mean and who decides and all of that like there's, you can't go into the narrative 
realm in a prediction market. They're completely in the data realm. And uh, so idea market is, is addressing the narrative aspect of information markets. Um, so there is, there is that major difference there. And I wanted to comment on something else that's really interesting that you said about incentives not guaranteeing moral behavior. Um, ab- absolutely. Yes. I think what I specifically meant there's was, I think just at, at the definitional level, it's impossible for incentives to guarantee moral behavior because it's impossible for anything to guarantee moral behavior because moral behavior by definition is voluntary. You have to have a choice to be immoral before you can choose to be moral. There's no guarantee of moral behavior. But what incentives can do is make moral behavior seem more or less eminently reasonable. You can make more moral behavior be the obvious reasonable choice, or you can make it look absurd. And when uh, incentives and what I'm calling now, you know, epistemic debt or philosophical debt accrues to a society that's, you know, built massive things on okay. uh, on structures with inevitable philosophical flaws that have gone too long without being questioned. Moral behavior starts to look absurd, um, and that's kind of where we're at now with okay. the so way uh, politicians and institutions are handling crises now. Is that whatever incentive structures they're em- embroiled in is making moral behavior like honesty and democracy look absurd to them. And we're paying the cost for, uh, for that. I'll leave it there. That's solid. Agreed. <laughs> it's amazing. Like that's the, that's the sad thing about, about DC, right? Is that you get all these people that come in with these really noble motivations. And then once they're like in the system working as politicians, you know, they're just cynical. And so that's that gets back to the question of, you know, the way the way forward actually being backwards, in as much as you know, in order to solve these problems, we have to like escape from the misapplied optimization function that makes it so that you're like, oh well, what what is the point here? The point is to succeed in politics. It's, it's like no, actually. Well. <clears throat> The the thing is, it sort of goes back to something I mentioned on on the one previous podcast. In that sort of oligarchic structure, those at the top who are reaping a ton of material and social benefits basically have constructed that, and and the system constructs itself organically to filter for complacency. The higher you get up this thing, it basically proves you have been complacent and you have like sunk more sunk more cost into the system. So the higher up they are, these people are more likely to be like, no, this guy's not coming up because he's going to shake things up, which means my lovely life is potentially ruined. So, you you know, the people in charge, uh, it's just built for that way, which is exactly why the people at the start go, oh yeah, this guy's so radical. And everyone above him's going, oh, that's cool. And I like your ideas, but you know, like I want another swimming pool next week. So like why would what you know like what is their incentive for but like what is their personal incentive to uh, to have this guy on board and event you know and that that the thing is with that structure is basically the same structure of how you get people to do things which they would never normally do and you find it even in like retail stores which have a managerial structure is that question of 
why is this assistant manager who's re- who's getting like what 15 bucks an hour such a horrible person and it's for that exact same reason that they have from that position been sort of built into complacency and that their modicum of life stability rests on them not shaking things up in the store or in and it, i think that whole oligarchic structure just goes across everything right it's the managerial state and it, it's really hard to to sort of penetrate because it's built to not be shaken up these are the reasons why you do not want to hire me right this is like this is uh the, the reason that i'm <laughs> amazed i've ever held a job is, is that what is you because... say in your job interview what are your weaknesses i'll probably ruin your entire company I mean, I think, you know, again, like the, the people that are going to flourish in a metamorphic economy or, you know, a, a kind of turbulent transitional period of history are the people that are going to welcome dissent, you know, that are, that are going to, you know, practice this humility and, and yet uh it gets back to this issue of like how do these systems aggregate information across time scales in such a way as to acknowledge that this is necessary some of them are just going to fall to this you know some of them are not going to be able to respond with the agility required to even acknowledge that that you know you want a red team inside your organization, and so I mean, you know, this is I, I think I've been more or less unemployable for my entire life, but I have hope. You know, looking out at everything that's being built these days, that you know that there that that me and people like me, the generalists and the the raconteurs and and the you know the Ian Malcolms of the world. Are are finally going to have, you know, are going to be folded and 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 folded into this this structure in a way, you know, our value will be captured. We will be co opted and commodified. And like, look, I mean, that's not entirely bad. It means I get to feed my kids, you know. So, uh, sort of like, eat me. <laughs> uh, I I I see it. Well, I mean, that is a perfect place for a mic drop. But uh, I don't know. I, I want to. I want to see if I can really frame that in a in a in a hopeful way that I think it really deserves. In that there's, a, I think, I think it is a Bible Bible story. The idea that like a little bit of leaven can make a whole loaf of bread rise, and I think that's kind of the role that uh, you know really sound philosophical examination and red teaming can do for the infrastructure that's being built right now because for every little improvement that that can be made okay. uh okay so the uh, Rachel, speed and, and gravity of out. the inevitable the, problems like, that it creates are, are going to be much much more manageable so i hope so i hope that uh, crypto people especially recognize that and make sure that you become eminently employable uh, in all the right ways or you know to to put it the way i did in in uh, Complexity episode forty two. Every court needs a fool. Yeah, you know? yeah, I like that. Next. Love that. That's why. That's why it's card zero. 
you know, because it's it is it's it's fundamental. You need you need somebody there to see things differently. Yeah, and I would definitely welcome that. I actually just started um, as a result of uh, the conversation with Buster Benson, who wrote The Art of Productive Disagreement, about his experiences uh, in companies encouraging honest, difficult conversation and red teaming and stuff. I just started a, a red team channel in the Idea Market Discord specifically for having an outlet for that stuff. So I'd love to have you come in and, and critique everything and tell us why we're idiots. Red team, the red team. Sure. Well, <laughs> you know, I'm by default the blue team. I have, you know, I have an agenda, but yeah, please, you know, bring, bring it on. I think that's awesome. And you're clearly are thinking about this stuff a lot in ways that I think are really great. And uh, this conversation has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, guys. I'd, I'd like to return the invitation and, and get you on Future Fossils sometime to state your case and, and, and James, to, to draw you out a little further into your, your, your strengths as a, a, a scholar and practitioner of the truly weird shit. <laughs> I don't. I don't practice. I don't practice the real weird stuff anymore. It's because you're too good of a scholar of it. You know that you know better than to practice oh, it yeah, too much. Never, no, we can we can discuss it after we've we've finished up there. Are we? Are we sort of this? Are we? Are we done? Uh, we're uh, we're we're good. Sure. I'm fine to okay. leave it rolling or um, or cut it off. Whatever you prefer. It seems like a pretty natural stop. Uh, so, but uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, Michael Garfield. Thanks very much for coming on. Thank you.